Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Living the Eternal Way, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living today with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. To ask questions or join in the discussion, email us at the Yoga Hour at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, here's your host, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to the Yoga Hour, a time to open our hearts and minds to the infinite. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien while she's away. And today, as always, we're going to be talking about yoga, yoga in its broadest sense. When many people hear the word yoga, they think of only a type of exercise usually done by <laughs> uh, done by people who are in uh, spandex, <laughs> but actually it's a much broader system, a broad system of spiritually conscious living today. And the word yoga actually means oneness, union, or unity, the bringing together of our attention and our awareness with the, our essential spiritual nature to be restored to our original wholeness. So today's topic on the Yoga Hour is Put Out the Fire with Ayurveda and Yoga. Over the last several years, more and more scientific research has come out that shows the role that inflammation plays in the development of many diseases. So what effects do the practices of yoga and Ayurveda have on inflammation? Do the anti-inflammatory effects of these practices explain some of the benefits on our health and wellness. And we couldn't have found a better person to discuss this with. My guest today is Diana Lurie, PhD. Diana is a professor of neuropharmacology at the University of Montana, where she directs a research laboratory focusing on central nervous system injury and the response of the nervous system to natural products, including Ayurvedic herbs. Dr. Lurie maintains active collaborations with other research groups at the University of Washington, the University of Kansas Medical Center, and Lila Pharma in Vijayawada, India. 
Dr. Lurie is an Ayurvedic practitioner and teaches neuroscience, anatomy and physiology, and courses in Ayurveda at the University of Montana. She's the editor-in-chief of the Ayurveda Journal of Health. You can find more about her and about the journal at ajh-journal.com, standing for Ayurveda Journal of Health. Welcome back, Diana. I'm so delighted that you could join me today. Thank you so much for having me. So before we begin to talk about Ayurveda yoga and inflammation, let's start with a moment of meditation, a yoga moment to begin. Oh. So we can start to turn our attention within by focusing on our breath. Our breath is a wonderful tool that's always with us, and we can use it to help bring our attention and awareness to the present. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we can begin by taking a fully conscious breath. And just notice as we inhale and exhale, just observing the breath, not trying to change it, just noticing its natural flow, cool air entering the nostrils, and warm air flowing out. So with each inhale, we can dive within. And each exhale, we can let go and relax. In this moment, as we turn our attention within, we can open our heart to the deep peace that is present at the core of our being. This essence of our being is the one reality called by many names. The support and substance of all that is. Right where we are, right here, And right now, this divine essence is present as you, as me, as everyone and everything. It's within us, between us, and all around us. Just by being present now and noticing we can rest in this essence of our being. We notice thoughts and feelings as they arise and as they pass away. We become aware of our essential nature beyond words and thoughts. Beyond all change, 
beyond sensation, pure existence being, We feel the peace that emanates from the essence of our being and allow it to pervade the mental field, the emotional nature, and the physical body. And now that we have touched this peace, we can bring it with us into our day and let it overflow as blessing for all that we meet. Once again, Diana Lurie, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. It's such a treat to have a Western-trained scientist who's also familiar with Ayurveda on the program so that we can talk about these interesting topics. So what interested you initially in Ayurveda? How does Ayurveda fit in with your research and teaching interests? Well, Laurel, so I'm trained as a neuroscientist, and that's how I've spent most of my career. And my research interests have been regeneration and injury in the central nervous system, in the brain and the spinal cord. About eight years ago, I kind of felt like we had reached a brick wall in our field in that um, we knew a lot about all the little details of the cells in the nervous system, but we still haven't solved the problem of how to get the spinal cord to regenerate. And at the time, I was getting Yoga Magazine because I was practicing yoga, and I thought, well, maybe we should look at a different system of medicine. Maybe we're not looking at the problem correctly. And so I'm leafing through my yoga journal, and at the back, there was an advertisement for training in Ayurveda, and I'd never heard of Ayurveda. So I thought, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what it is. And I did a little research on it, of course, and Mm -hmm. um, what I found was that it's a really obviously ancient system of medicine um, out of India, and what really appealed to me was the concept of dosha, the concept of individual psychology and physiology. Because as a scientist, that really means that they're basing the whole system on an individual person's genetics. And Mm. so as a scientist, that appealed to me. And so I um, enrolled in a course to become an Ayurvedic practitioner through Kerala Ayurveda, and at the time it was in Seattle, and got trained as an Ayurvedic practitioner and learned um, through my training how deep the practice of Ayurveda is. And the two concepts that I really took away from it in terms of health and wellness was the importance of your digestion and elimination, which is really central to Ayurvedic um, healing, and the concept of inflammation, because many of the treatments and practices in Ayurveda really reduce inflammation. And so I brought that back to the university. And um, so I teach courses, as you said, in Ayurveda. I also teach my, I'm in the School of Pharmacy, so I teach my pharmacy students how to breathe before exams so they don't panic. Um, And I also have brought um, some of the herbs into the laboratory. So I study herbs like bacopa and turmeric and go to cola. 
And I look at their ability to reduce inflammation in the brain by looking at certain cells in the brain that release things that start inflammation. And I look to see how these herbs or um, extracts of these herbs can inhibit that inflammation. Wow. That is so cool. So as a general internist, now that we're on the topic of inflammation, I I did want to share, you know, my own, how my own perspective on inflammation has changed. So um, I do need to take a recertification exam every 10 years, which I last took about uh, five years ago now in 2012. And what I was amazed at between 2002 and 2012 is how much scientific evidence had accumulated about the key role that inflammation plays in many diseases. And inflammation was being recognized as much more central process than was originally thought. Now, of course, when we talk about inflammation, people might think, and especially we talk about inflammation associated with disease, people might think, oh, it's all bad. (laughs) I don't want any inflammation. But inflammation is a natural process of the body that's also important in healing. So, So can you give us, from your perspective, what is a definition of inflammation? Okay, well, the easiest way to kind of think about inflammation is to look at it if you get like a bacterial infection or you damage your your tissue. So everybody knows like when you scrape yourself, you know, that area gets red. And so what happens after you get a bacterial infection or you damage your tissue, the cells in the area release what are called chemical mediators. They release chemicals into the bloodstream. And there are many of these and two that we're going to, that I'll talk about a little bit today are um, interleukin-6 IL-6 and TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha. And they're involved in in talking between the immune system and the nervous system. So these chemical mediators are released into the blood, and that causes more blood to flow, and and that results in having an increased number of white blood cells that come to the site of the damaged tissue. And those white blood cells are able to destroy the bacteria and start repairing the tissue. And so that's mm-hmm. essentially what inflammation is. It's when these um, immune cells um, either uh, start attacking and getting rid of a, an invader, but as you said, they're also involved in healing the tissue. And so there's a really fine balance between the two types of cells that are that are part of the inflammatory response. So you exactly. have to keep it in, in balance. And when we look at inflammation and disease, that balance has been disturbed and it, it shifts more towards the more destructive aspect of inflammation. Yes, yeah, sometimes when I would think about it or trying to describe it for patients, it would seem to me like a snowball rolling down the hill because, you know, as you mentioned, it's triggered a process that's triggered by tissue damage or by a you know foreign invader, um, and then cells come into that area and they release, as you mentioned, various uh, chemicals. And those chemicals attract more cells, which release more chemicals, which, right. you know, you know, you can see how it can just kind of continue to grow. So, um, what things 
are known to increase inflammation. And again, not now we're not talking about the beneficial process of inflammation, but tip it over and make the balance too high, uh, shift the balance too much toward increased inflammation that may potentially lead to disease. Right. So there are a number of things that, like we said, that increase inflammation. We just talked about infection or injury. Um, and other diseases like f- the flu and other viral infections also increase inflammation. And you know that you've got that inflammatory response, and that's a good response, and you get a fever, and that helps to kill those viruses. But there are other diseases like um, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, which are degenerative diseases of the brain that also um, increase inflammation. And one of the things that's really being talked about a lot is um, things in our diet and stress can increase inflammation. So people are beginning to recognize that some of the foods that we eat put stress on our system and that also increases inflammation. Yes, and um, I'm glad you mentioned stress because I think that is such a you know, such a, we're in such a state of chronic prolonged stress now, which is very different from when the stress response originally, you know, was, was, um, part of our adapted response many, you know, thousands of years ago. Something would come along, we'd become stressed for a short period of time, and then the stressor would go away. Right. And now, you know, the stress response is, is, for many people, most people maybe is a chronic state where we're chronically stressed. And one of the interesting things to think about is, because the inflammatory response is a natural process and it's part of the healing mechanism, it would make sense that it would be increased under stress because if it, if we're in a, you know, fight, flight or freeze situation, potentially the body might be you know, damaged or injured, and so the body needs to be prepared to heal itself, which is part of the inflammatory response. But again, we get into this chronic, the effects of chronic stress and how then it can tip tip it over and be in too much inflammation. Right. And actually, you know, we are constantly in a chronic state of stress. I mean, think about just getting in your car and driving. You have to mm-hmm. be alert. You have to activate your fight or flight response. How many times have you, you know, somebody's almost hit you or you there's a pedestrian that steps into the, the road and you feel that rush of adrenaline? That's all part of the stress response. So it's really interesting because... Um, as we've moved into modern times, we need to really take active measures to decrease our stress. And that wasn't probably the case, you know, hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. So our lifestyle really predicates that we have to do things like medication, uh, meditation or yoga or something to bring those stress levels back down. Right. And talking about, you know, those, the things that you mentioned. So um, yoga, meditation, many Ayurvedic practices, again, decrease stress. And so that is one of the ways, and we're going to talk about many others, I think, in the second part of the program. Um, but you can even begin to see how these practices sort of by their nature are anti-inflammatory. So, what other things besides, we talked about stress, increasing inflammation. So how about aging? What role does aging play in inflammation? Well, aging definitely increases inflammation. And I have a friend who says, you know, we, we get old and inflamed and not in a good way. Mm-hmm. So um, we get 
aging does lead to inflammation. It's part of the natural process of of aging. And Mm -hmm. we see inflammatory diseases like arthritis and heart disease more as we age. Also, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's diseases, those are mostly diseases of aging. Mm-hmm. And inflammation plays a big role in these diseases. And so mm-hmm. what we think happens, at least in terms of looking at the brain, is that the immune cells of the brain, which are called microglia, they shift to become more inflammatory. So those mm-hmm. microglia can either be part of the immune response and be part of the healing process or be part of the more inflammatory process. And Mm. so as we age, those microglia sort of shift to become more inflammatory. And we'll talk about this again a little bit later, but it's interesting because inflammation is associated with depression, and depression is a big issue in as we get older. And I think people might have thought, well, you know, you get older and you can't do what you wanted to do, so you get depressed. But that might not be the case. It may be more that your microglia are shifting. Mm. So, so, so fascinating to understand yeah. it more on a on a uh, and to see these changes on a you know microscopic level. So before we move to that though, because I I, I want to just talk about you know the process of inflammation itself. So uh, when we look at Ayurveda, and and I actually you know was kind of playing around with that you know with the title of this is um, is um, put out the fire uh, mm-hmm. with yoga and Ayurveda so um, I did want to kind of contrast it you know with the with the good part of, of heat the good part of fire in the body right. uh, from an Ayurvedic viewpoint is Agni or digestive fire mm-hmm. and that we really want to build so several Ayurvedic practices really help us help us build up this digestive heat like drinking warm water first thing in the morning so Agni is heat that is good for the body. We don't want to put out that heat. Um, but what is the, uh, what's the Ayurvedic view of inflammation and how does that relate in any way to Agni? Okay, well, that's a really good question, and I'm probably I'm probably not the best person to answer this from a very deep Ayurvedic perspective. But I will give you my perspective as a as a scientist and as a as a sort of general practitioner. Okay. And I think the concept of Agni, you can really, really think about it similarly to how we think about inflammation, where some of the inflammatory response is good and necessary for t- tissue he- healing, but when it gets out of control, it's not good and it's destructive. Mm-hmm. So I think of, and I think Ayurveda thinks of inflammation being associated with pitta. And so there are a lot of pitta diseases that are associated with inflammation like skin rashes and ulcers and hyperacidity and heartburn. Um, So when I think about Agni, I think about you have to have a certain amount of Agni because you want to um, make sure you don't have ama built up in the system and um, or, or waste materials right. we're talking about. Yes, yeah. think about as triggering disease and so I think of that build up of AMA as triggering inflammation so you have to have some Agni, you have to have a good strong Agni to prevent AMA from being formed but it has to be a balanced Agni which is mm-hmm. what Vedic texts have always said you have to have balanced Agni. If you have too little Agni, you get ama accumulation and it leads to disease. And I think of it as contributing to inflammation. And if you have too much Agni, then that also can lead to inflammatory diseases like 
hyperacidity and gastritis and colitis, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. the GI system. And I think from an Ayurvedic perspective, when we think about uh, Agni, they really uh, talk about it as, um, you know, part of the digestive and metabolic, you know, processes of the fire that, you know, that helps us burn our food. So when you think about it that way, you can see how, well, you wouldn't want too much. I'm sorry, right. too little, because then you're not going to be able to, you know, fully metabolize the food. And then you wouldn't really want too much. It's burning too hot. Um, and you did mention Pitta there. So for people who aren't familiar with Ayurveda, there are three main uh, types, although there are also subtypes, uh, three main, and, and you mentioned it, Diana, they're not just body types, but they're also psychological, you know, so they're psychophysical, right. you know, types, one of which is um, is Pitta, although everyone has uh, Pitta, this, this fire element um, is, uh, Pitta is made up of actually both fire and water, but this fire element, everyone has that, needs to have that, um, we all need you know, components, uh, uh, we all need aspects of the three, um, the three, uh, types in order for our bodies to, you know, to do everything that they need to do. But this idea of balance is really important in Ayurveda. The balance is really important and that disease really comes from an imbalance. And, um, oftentimes, uh, the description of disease, when you look at the stages of disease, um, which Ayurveda looks at as having six uh, stages. Um, one of the initial stages is there's an imbalance sort of in the digestive tract, and then it moves out, you know, from the digestive tract sort of into the body and can lodge, you know, in a weak spot in the body. Right. So I, I would agree with you. I'm not the best person to talk about this either because my understanding of Ayurveda, while I'm very interested in it, is is uh, more of a beginner's, you know, understanding. Um, but um, I think we I think we did a we scratched the surface there. Pretty well. Yeah, and and you know what's what's really interesting is sort of the concept of balance. And I think that in Western medicine, we're moving towards that concept of balance. And we're seeing that inflammation is the result of being out of balance, even from a Western medical perspective. And so I think I think that the idea of looking at Agni and Ama and balance and inflammation as a package together is a really um, insightful way to think about our own health. Mm. That's that's lovely. And we're going to talk a lot more about this when we come back from the break. So you're listening to the Yoga Hour with our guest, Diana Lurie, who's a PhD neuroscientist, researcher, who's also trained in Ayurveda. She's a professor of neuropharmacology at the University of Montana. And she's also um, the editor-in-chief of the journal, um, Ayurveda Journal of Health. And you can find out more about her and about the journal at AJH-Journal, Ayurveda Journal of Health, so AJH-Journal.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for Yogacharya O'Brien. When we come back from the break, a lot more about the anti-inflammatory effects of Ayurveda and yoga. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. 
Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. God is formless, yet takes many forms. What goes around comes around. Chant the name of the Lord and be free. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ever been confused by the variety and apparent contradiction within world religions? Join Reverend Paul John Roach every Tuesday for insight into those principles held in common by all the great religious traditions in world spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions. Using discussions, interviews, humor, insight, and practice, Practical advice, we will clarify the confusion and reveal simple yet profound truths. Call in with your questions and ideas and help break down the barriers that separate us from one another. That's World Spirituality with Paul John Roach. Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. We now return to The Yoga Hour. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for The Yoga Hour's regular host, Yogacharya O'Brien, and I'm joined today by Dr. Diana Lurie. Um, in this segment, again, we're going to be discussing more about the anti-inflammatory effects of yoga and Ayurveda. So, so Diana, we've mentioned a few of the specific diseases that have been associated with inflammation. Um, and I'll, from a, um, internal medicine perspective, I'll give a, a very, you know, small, short list, but I know there, there are many, many others. So we know that, uh, definition, sorry, we, we know that inflammation definitely plays a role in cardiovascular disease, which is the number one cause of death in both men and women. And it also plays a role in diabetes, osteoarthritis, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and then lots of, well, all really of the autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And you mentioned early on, which I was very interested to, to know about, um, that inflammation plays a role in depression. So can you say, say more about this? My, you know, my 
um, formulation about depression has to do with, uh, you know, the neurochemicals in the brain, um, the neurotransmitters and the very, the balance and a lot of the medications that we have for depression alter that balance and that's the way that they work. But I believe that Inflammation is now known to play perhaps as strong of a role as the as the uh, imbalance in the uh, neurotransmitters. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. It's really interesting, and it's one of these cases where the science comes out a long time ago, and then people kind of ignore it. And you're quite correct <laughs> in that we think of traditionally think of depression as being a disease of the neurotransmitters or the chemicals that neurons use to talk to each other in the brain. But back in 1991, um, a Dr. Smith proposed this theory that inflammation plays a role in depression and that the chemical mediators like TNF-alpha and IL-6 are actually the cause of depression. And so that kind of was ignored for a little while, but recently people are going back to that theory and finding that people that have depression have higher levels of, the, of this TNF-alpha and IL-6 circulating in their blood. Um, and people that have some of the inflammatory diseases that you just talked about, like cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, arthritis, they also have a higher prevalence of depression. So they're more likely to get depressed. And in fact, people that have rheumatoid arthritis are two times as likely to develop depression compared to, to healthy people. Mm-hmm. So... The opposite is also true. If you treat people with these inflammatory cytokines, that results in depression. And we use these cytokines, um, different classes of them, to treat things like hepatitis and leukemia. And so when patients are undergoing that treatment of, um, for example, gamma interferon is used to treat hepatitis C, and there's a higher incidence of depression in patients while they're being treated with um, the gamma interferon. And this Mm -hmm. is also true for cancer patients that are being treated with some of these um, chemical mediators. And then once the treatment stops, then their depression goes. And we know that that drugs like aspirin um, reduce our levels of TNF-alpha and IL-6, and there's a little bit of work showing that if you combine aspirin with antidepressive medication, you get higher rates of remission of depression than just using the antidepressive medication alone. So it's really interesting. It's a very interesting... Really interesting and very different, I think, from our, you know, our original understanding of these diseases and brings me back to what I said at the beginning, which is um, when I was doing that, you know, that board review five years ago, I was just amazed that everything I read about, you know, every disease and I didn't was reading, wasn't reading about depression at that time, but it goes along. It's just like everything has some, you know, relationship with inflammation. So now that we have a better understanding uh, in this conversation of what inflammation is and then the negative effects of inflammation in the body, let's turn to what yoga and Ayurveda have to offer. Excuse me. So Abhyanga or self-massage with oil is a very commonly recommended Ayurvedic practice. So have we looked at uh, we, (laughs) the royal we, um, have you looked at or have people looked at the effect of Abhyanga on inflammation? Well, I wish they had. So one of the Mm. things that I do is I look at the studies in the Western literature and then try and see if they're applicable to Ayurveda because we really do need to do a study where 
people engage in Abhyanga and then measure the IL-6 and TNF-alpha or some of these chemical mediators. And that hasn't been done yet. Mm. But there is a study looking at Abhyanga that shows that it significantly reduces heart rate, which is correlated with a reduction in stress. So there is some indication that Abhyanga reduces stress. And so one might imagine that you would see a decrease in these um, inflammatory chemicals. But that that would be a great study to do. And then oils, though, um, because I believe that there are particular oils that help reduce inflammation. Is that right? And and does this involve, like, cooking that with them or just ingesting them? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. And, in fact, interestingly, there's a lot of information on sesame oil. And sesame oil is the base for many of the herbalized oils that we use in Ayurveda for abhyanga, Shiradhara, which is where you drip the oil on the forehead. Um, And sesame oil itself has um, been shown to have anti-inflammatory properties. And there's a component of sesame oil called sesamin. And that inhibits the, the production and the release of IL-6 in the inflammatory cells of the brain in a model of Parkinson's disease. Mm. So sesame oil alone is anti-inflammatory, and it prevents particularly brain, the brain inflammatory cells, the microglial cells, from shifting into a very inflammatory phenotype or uh, uh, inflammatory um, mode. But most of these studies, you know, they haven't, like cover, you know, done a sesame oil massage with somebody and then looked at inflammation. Most mm-hmm. of the studies have looked at adding sesame into tissue culture cells to see if it reduces mm. the inflammation in cells mm. that are growing in a dish. Um, mm. There's nothing that looks has looked at cooking with sesame oil, but there is one study that showed in animals that if you ingest sesame oil, <laughs> you decrease. Um, the inflammatory markers. And there is one study that looked at using sesame oil for shiradhara, the oil dripping on the forehead, and they showed that it alters some of the immune cells involved in inflammation, but it wasn't a very thorough study. So so there's these little hints that it would reduce the inflammation in the entire body. But again, you know, those studies really haven't been done yet. So uh, you mentioned in the in your comments uh, a while ago that you look at herbs, several herbs that have been used in Ayurveda. So um, can you say a little bit more about that? What herbs have been shown to have anti-inflammatory effects? Well, this is really an interesting topic because herbs are plants, and plants have you know hundreds of different components to them, and. I would say a majority of plants have some kind of anti-inflammatory property, depending Mm -hmm. on what kind of system that you look at. So Mm -hmm. most of the plants in a scientific sense would be able to show some kind of anti-inflammatory activity. And so the way to kind of reconcile that is I go back to the Ayurvedic literature to see which plants are actually used to reduce inflammation. And that's why, and I'm interested in the nervous system, so that's why I focus on Bacopa monieri and Centella asiatica, which is go to cola. It's also called Brahmi. 
and turmeric because those are all used in Ayurveda um, to treat the mind. Um, turmeric is just an all-around good herb, and it's used in disease, inflammatory diseases. And my lab has shown that those three herbs reduce TNF-alpha and IL-6 from being released by the um, inflammatory cells in the brain. And there's some other studies that have looked at Bacopa and have shown that it's good at decreasing inflammation in a, an animal model of arthritis as well. And we know that, like, Gota-Cola is used to treat not just the mind, but also skin diseases. And a lot of skin diseases have a major inflammatory component to them. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the way... I think to approach this is to look and see what these herbs are used for traditionally. Do are they used traditionally to to treat diseases that have a big inflammatory component? And then look to see, okay, um, if this if this herb is used to treat arthritis, um, is it going to inhibit inflammation in the cells that are involved in arthritis? So, so let's look at some other uh, practices, and and we did, <clears throat> excuse me, we did talk a bit about this earlier, about their their um, uh, impact on stress. So when we look at meditation, for example, and we know that meditation has been shown in many studies to be beneficial for various you know stress related issues. Um, have have we examine the anti-inflammatory effects of meditation. Has yeah, that been looked and, at? yeah, and in fact, it's really interesting because almost eighty percent of the one hundred and forty accredited medical schools in the U.S. presently incorporate some kind of mindfulness-based intervention into their either their treatment, their education, or their research programs. So, even our Western medical community has has acknowledged that mindfulness and meditation are good for reducing stress. And so the studies are now just beginning to come out. You know, the most, um, there are a couple studies that were just published in 2016 that looked at it. And um, one study looked at uh, stressed, job-seeking, unemployed adults. And these adults were given mindfulness meditation training. And they... um, practiced this, and then four months at a four-month follow-up, they measured the levels of IL-6 in their blood and found that those levels had been reduced. And they also took a look at, the bra- at their brains using MRI, functional MRI, mm-hmm. and they showed that there were some alterations in the areas of the brain that were involved in stress and emotional kind of regulating emotions. So that's mm-hmm. really interesting. Because these yes. are not people that would normally, you know, do meditation probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and another chemical mediator, uh, CRP, was also found to be decreased when you look at a whole series of um, studies on mindfulness meditation. So there's definitely evidence that's coming out now that shows that meditation is does have a really significant um, impact on inflammation. Right, and just a, a brief translation. So CRP is a C-reactive C-reactive protein, protein, which is a 
which is a protein that's produced by the the liver, I believe, and it yes. is when when you're under stress, um, you know, there's the levels of CRP go up. So how about how about uh, postures, yoga postures, yoga asanas, um, and other yogic practices? Have there been studies that show reduced inflammation with um, the physical, you know, side of, of yeah. yoga? Yes, and there there is. There was a recent study where they took um, 218 volunteers, and half of those people had practiced yoga daily for five years, and the other half of the subjects didn't. So they had a yoga group and a non-yoga group. And so what they did was they had each of these groups perform some exercise. And what they had to do was walk between two markers in a specific amount of time. And the amount of time they had to go from one marker to the next was decreased. So they started at a walk, and then they ended up having to run back and forth. And so they looked for IL-6 in the blood before and after this walking test, and they measured IL-6 and TNF-alpha. And what they found was that just even before they did the exercise, the non-yoga group had more higher levels of these inflammatory um, components, the TNF-alpha and IL-6, compared to the yoga group. So -hmm. the yoga group started out with less inflammation. And then after both the walking back and forth and the running back and forth, both groups had an increase in TNF-alpha and IL-6, but the yoga group had a much smaller increase. Mm-hmm. So the study concluded that if you practice yoga, you'll reduce these inflammatory cytokines. But one real at, problem... At base, both at baseline and, both at baseline and, and, and under and, stress. Right. But one problem with the group what with this study was that there wasn't a good control. So mm-hmm. a good control would be another group that exercised regularly, like mm-hmm. runners. You know, mm-hmm. so you don't know if it's the yoga specifically or exercise in general mm-hmm. that would reduce the inflammation. So that would be a really interesting study to do. And I should say that for most people who practice meditation or practice yoga mm-hmm. in any of its many forms i think the reason people do it is is um it does make them feel better it does make them feel less stressed i think that is a subjective feeling that most people would say yes of course you know that's one of the reasons i do it right um, yeah and there and there's some other studies that show that the more you do yoga the more of an increase uh, more of a decrease in these markers you get and that you still continue to have these decreases even if you stop practicing yoga. Mm-hmm. So um, we, you've talked a little bit, you talked about uh, turmeric as an herb, but how about other spices in the diet? Just people certainly do cook with turmeric as well. Mm-hmm. Um, have spices been shown to reduce inflammation? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, a lot of spices have um, anti-inflammatory properties, but in particular, spices like turmeric, red and black pepper, clove, licorice, garlic, ginger, coriander, cinnamon, all of those have been studied scientifically and have been shown to um, to alter the release of these inflammatory mediators. And, you know, what really speaks to using spices in the diet is some information, population information. So if we look at Alzheimer's disease, 3.7% of people in South Asia have Alzheimer's and the lowest rates are in rural India. 
And this contrasts with North Americans, where 6.4% of North Americans of a similar age have Alzheimer's. Wow. So the incidence of Alzheimer's is twi almost twice as high in North Americans as compared to people in South Asia. Mm. And interestingly, as the South Asian diet becomes more westernized, you're beginning to see a rise in the increase in diseases like Alzheimer's and heart disease and diabetes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, before we, we, we probably have about another um, six or seven minutes here, and I did want to give a, you a chance to talk about the Ayurveda Journal of Health. So you're the editor-in-chief for this journal, and uh, can you Share a little bit more about it with our listeners. What kind of sure. art? What kind of articles do you publish? And is it only focused on research? No, not at all. So the journals publish four times a year, and we publish a hard copy in the e-journals. And we really try to reflect the breadth of Ayurveda and make it relevant to a large number of people. So whether you're in a yoga practitioner, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, a Western medical person. We really try and bring in articles that would be interested, interesting to everybody, even though we focus on Ayurveda. So we have recipes because diet and food is so important in Ayurveda. We have commentaries, so people commenting on some of the new things that are coming out, either in Western medicine or Ayurveda. We do book reviews. We do review articles. We try and publish um, case studies. So we, we publish case studies, research studies, meeting reports. So we really try and reflect the, the whole profession of Ayurveda and, and yoga um, in this journal. And with that, we should we should mention again the the website. So it's Ayurveda Journal of Health. So it's ajh-journal.com. So um, I was always also interested that you teach a class about Ayurveda in a very different setting than most classes of Ayurveda. So you're teaching at the University of Montana, and uh, I'm not sure if it's to pharmacy students or to if it's open to everyone, but how is the class received and how much interest is there in learning about Ayurveda? Well, there's a lot of interest. So I teach in a school of pharmacy. So my course is open to the whole university, but I get a lot of pharmacy students in it. And it's very, very popular. And I think... I think part of this is that more students are really who are interested in going into the health professions are really interested in integrative and holistic medicine like Ayurveda. Um, and pharmacy students are really interested because pharmacies carry herbal products. And so they're very interested in learning about Ayurveda and naturopathy because they're going to be stocking some of these herbs in their pharmacies. And in rural communities, pharmacists can be the only health care provider around, you know, within mm. 100 miles. So they're very interested in learning about wellness practices that they can teach to their, um, to their clients. I also teach Ayurveda to physical therapy students. Um, so I think, I think there's a general interest in, in self-healing in wellness, I think this is reflected in our medical community as well, and I think that um, as we move forward, some of these practices like Ayurveda or um, naturopathy are going to be incorporated a little bit more into, say, the medical school curriculum. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I believe it's it's uh, it's already happening, and that mm-hmm. I think a lot of medical schools do have elective courses that students you know students can take uh, for right. sure. Right. So, so you follow research about Ayurveda pretty closely, and you obviously do research on your own in your you know your neuroscience lab. Um, and research on Ayurveda is, is a little bit you know different, um, mm-hmm. partly be, partly because. As you were mentioning, um, the treatments vary uh, with the person's um, type, you know, so right. that there's not not just uh, one, for example, not just one way to develop a disease, but there's actually many ways. So for the de- disease of diabetes, for example, from an Ayurvedic perspective, I believe there are 17 different ways that the, the same disease, you know, there are 17 different imbalances that can lead to this different disease. So obviously you can't just make one treatment. So right. well, is there a study, an Ayurvedic study that you would love to see? Well, you know, is there is there one that would, you know, would be, you know, wow, that would be such a cool study to be done? Well, I'm there, there actually have been some really interesting studies that look at Ayurveda and rheumatoid arthritis and mm-hmm. use the individualized medicine of Ayurveda, but look at outcome of of arthritis and has been shown to be very promising. What I'm really interested in is the herbalized oils. And the reason why I'm interested in them is because you can use oils to deliver herbs or their compounds through the skin. And that's a really understudied area of science. And it's interesting because you can get components of herbs into the bloodstream without having to go through the digestive system. Right. Where it gets broken down and metabolized. Exactly. Yeah. And, yes, uh, the liver is supposed to metabolize everything that comes up from the digestive system. Right. It's part of the digestive process of our food. So as you've mentioned, you know, putting it into putting um uh, things like herbs in through the skin, um I mean it is something that is used in medicine. There are transdermal, right. you know, pat- patches right. of various, you know, or- hormones and that sort of thing. Um so uh, Diana, this has been just a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Is there any last little, I'll let you have the, the, the last word, <laughs> any <laughs> bit of encouragement or inspiration that you'd like to leave with our listeners in the next minute or so? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that um, one of the basic things that Ayurveda teaches you is to be self-aware to pay attention to how you feel after you eat, after you exercise, as you move through your life. If you eat something that makes you feel heavy or tired or not well, then you probably shouldn't eat it. And that probably is related to inflammation. So I think having the confidence to pay attention to yourself and how you're feeling is a huge step towards moving into wellness and there are a lot more and more studies that are coming out that show a lot of Ayurvedic practices have really positive effects on health but it really comes down to yourself and having the confidence in yourself mm-hmm. that you know what makes you feel good what makes you not feel good and and sort of following that guideline that your body's giving you Mm-hmm. Which is also obviously such a yoga perspective as yeah. well. You know, self-study is a basic, you know, key yoga practice. So we've come to the end of our time today. You've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo. 
sitting in for Yogacharya O'Brien, and we've been discussing Put Out the Fire with Ayurveda and Yoga with our special guest, Diana Lurie, PhD, Professor of Neuropharmacology at the University of Montana, researcher, teacher, and Ayurvedic practitioner. And I think we've all benefited from Dr. Lurie's extensive background in both neuroscience and Ayurveda. I'm very appreciative that she joined us today on the Yoga Hour. So thank you, Diana. Thank you. It's been really fun. And one last uh, mention of the website uh, for the Ayurveda Journal of Health, ajh-journal.com. There's also a previous episode with Dr. Lurie in the Yoga Hour archives at unity.fm slash the yoga hour. And that's from uh, November 5th, 2015 called Good Sense, Good Science and Good Practices for Health and Well-Being, uh, in which the two of us actually discuss the scientific research behind some Ayurvedic practices. Um, for those listening in July and early August 2017, there is a special event coming up at CSE, the Sheltering Tree of Compassion, a vegetarian dinner and special program to benefit CSE's Compassionate Care Program. For more information, see CSE's website at csecenter.org. Um, Next week, we're going to feature a, an encore podcast from the archives called Self-Discipline, Willpower, and Positive Change. Listen in to this conversation between Yogacharya O'Brien and guest Dr. Kelly McGonigal, author of the book, The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It. The Yoga Hour is a service project for the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. You can find out more at csecenter.org. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast at iTunes or Stitcher. I look forward to being with you again while Yogacharya O'Brien is away. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Join us every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, for practical, purposeful methods for spiritually conscious living every day. The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by friends and members of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California, a ministry in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization, www.csecenter.org. Request free literature by writing info at csecenter.org. Notice how the funniest things happen when we stop taking ourselves too seriously and step out boldly? Listen to Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed as these unlikely saints administer a refreshing dose of laughter and love that will inspire you to step out boldly and experience the funniest things. Join the discussion with Daryl and Ed live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Time on Funniest Thing, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
you ever said to yourself, I'm living a life I never intended to create? What life did you intend to create? Did you set goals? Did you work toward reaching those goals? If we don't have a specific goal in mind or we don't know where we want to go, we may be likely to end up in places not of our choosing. Establishing goals along with guidelines on how to achieve them helps to keep us focused and energized and often makes our lives more interesting, useful, and successful. It's never too late to take control of your life. Once you have your purpose clearly in mind, explore the various ways you can make it happen and visualize the process you believe can work best. Set goals, do what it takes to accomplish them, and enjoy your process. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology. Available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. 